Welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Drew Evans. And I'm Ben Garmo. Today on the podcast, we're going to be discussing the board meeting. We got to hear from President-elect Will Warhey last time we discussed the meeting, but now that the decisions have been made, we want a chance to quickly go through and break down what was discussed and what has changed. Now, while I was not able to go, fortunately, Ben was lucky enough to travel out to Las Vegas and he got to listen in. So, Ben, how was it? I had a really good time. Uh, you know, it's funny. I had a couple of the people that I knew before I went there who approached me at the end. And, you know, I think they came up there like, oh, what'd you think? Almost in, in a in a joking way, because it's a board meeting, right? It's just a bunch of people sitting in a room. But I had a blast. I, I really enjoyed being, you know, in the room where it happens to make a topical reference. And uh, I think there's a lot of challenges that we still have to confront as an organization, but I think it would be hard for someone who does AMTA or is connected with AMTA in some capacity to sit in that room for the two days of the meeting and come out of there feeling like we don't have good people on them, right? Like we have a lot of people who have a ton of experience and a ton of good ideas. And I'm really encouraged to uh, see the progress that was made. One of the cool things that we are able to bring you is Will Warhey, AMTA president, was grateful enough to uh, let me know beforehand that he was okay with me recording his introductory speech at the beginning of the meeting. And so I want to listen to that so that we can have a little bit of a reaction to Will's remarks to the overall board at the beginning of the meeting. I think this is a very important moment uh, in in our development, in our history, I think the, we have some kind of foundational issues to, to think about and talk about that I hope we will debate this weekend. Uh, everything from invention of fact and what that means and whether or not those of us in this room can even agree on what that means, uh, to how our tournaments are run, to how we deal with the growth of our activity, uh, and, and to how this board continues to operate and kind of the foundational structural issues of, of how we run this nonprofit. Um, those are all things that I'm hoping we can work on and work towards uh, over the next uh, next two years. Um, you know, we've seen exponential growth, and I think uh, you know we need we need to put together a plan. Um, we need something in writing uh, that provides you know, the word strategic plan for some people are taboo, uh, but I think that is that is going to be a big focus of what I want us to accomplish over the next two years is to put together an affirmative written documented plan for what this organization is going to look like in 5, 10, 20 years. Um, overarchingly, my, I, I'm going to be a hands-on leader. I'm going to be involved in, in pushing our committees to complete their work. And I'm going to expect each of the committees to uh, provide actual documented work product for, from, from what we're doing here. Uh, I don't think it's in, I think having conversations certainly is important. The discussions that we have are important. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't translate into action or results, uh, I, I don't think that necessarily serves a goal. So my challenge and my, my challenge to each committee is to provide some documentable proof of your progress over the course of the next year. Certainly that looks differently for every committee. Uh, it's, and it's certainly easier for some committees than, than others. Uh, quite literally, case has to produce a case, and TAC has to host tournaments. Uh, but I, I think, from academics to ethics to to uh, accommodations and 
all of these other committees that provide important frameworks for activity need to actually you know, step up and provide, provide some documentable proof. Um, so along those lines, you'll, you'll look at my committee structure. I added a lot of committees, separated out some things that we've been doing for some years to try to give them more structure. Um, one of them is our tournament ad hoc, our tournament future ad hoc, and there is a motion on the agenda for us to talk about that in some more detail, and I hope we can do that. Uh, I think the growth that we experienced this year is uh, both exciting but potentially problematic for us if it continues at the same rate that we saw this year. Uh, I don't think our tournament structure is currently designed is, is able to handle uh, can this continued growth, and I think it's time that we take a look at that uh, and, and provide actual results. Um, I separated out the new team and mentorship committee. Uh, the goal there is to provide Brandon as the chair of that committee, uh, a, a resource, a group of people that he can call on to be mentors for new teams and new programs, uh, and, and provide some structure as more of a boots on the ground um, committee that can provide that resource to our membership. Certainly there will be some crossover there with what academics is doing, and I expect that Lois and Brandon will work well together to, to accomplish those goals. Uh, I added a judge recruitment subcommittee to TAC. Uh, that is an aspect of our competitions that I think uh, we have kind of been kind of see no evil, hear no evil for, for a long time. We've, we've pushed that responsibility on our hosts. I think it's a thing the board needs to take more responsibility for going forward. All of us in this room spend an inordinate amount of time, uh, those of us that coach, with our teams preparing. And I think as a board we owe it to, to the competitors that spend that much time preparing for our tournaments to try, to at least try, to provide quality judging for, for those competitions. Uh, so that's the goal of that committee, is for us to take a more, more hands-on approach with, with judge recruitment, and in theory, that eventually helps us with, with our host and host recruitment issues. Uh, the next one is website, marketing, social media. That is kind of a rebranding of, of what was the technology committee. What I talked to them this morning about, and, and the goal for that group, is uh, to take a more hands-on approach with our social media. We've had Twitter, we've had Facebook now for about eight years, uh, but it's never had a home. It's, it's more or less been me and Jonathan texting back and forth about what should be posted there, and I think we need to be more intentional and meaningful about how we're using those mediums to communicate to, to our membership, and kind of using that in conjunction with development to raise money for the organization. Uh, the last thing that I think Matthew will talk about or touch on tomorrow uh, during his budget presentation is I've asked them to investigate starting a AMSET endowment. Uh, we have a sum of money uh, that, that we could use to help that money work for us and, and generate some kind of self-sustaining income for our organization uh, that, if done right, could provide some very tangible results from a financial perspective for us in the future. You know, it ideally, in an ideal world, that helps us reduce registration costs, which helps us reduce the barrier of entry into our activity, which is already uh, pretty expensive, and of course, the travel costs is very expensive. Um, I'll conclude by saying that I, um, over the past few months, I've spoken on the phone with almost every single one of you. Those conversations have been extremely exciting for me and, and have me extremely motivated to, to begin this process of the next year with this group of people. 
We have over 60 volunteers, uh, in addition to the actual voting directors that help make this organization run. That's an incredible thing. Uh, and we have an incredible group of people here who care very deeply about the, the mission and our goal of providing this activity that we all believe to be of such great benefit to the students that compete in it. Uh, and so I want to get to work, and I hope that you guys are with me in that process and actually um, providing some work and moving this organization forward. Um, so thank you for selecting me and entrusting me with this, and I look forward to, to a great meeting this weekend. And of course, thanks to Will for allowing me to record that so that we can bring it to all of you. So Drew, that was sort of your first time getting a chance to to listen in. Obviously, I was there. But from what Will said, anything stand out to you? What's your reaction to hearing what he had to say? Uh, well, I gave a little cheer when uh, he mentioned the fact that uh, they are going to officially be making a subcommittee uh, for TAC to get judges, um, and specifically getting quality judges, as he mentioned, uh, that's really encouraging to me. I think that uh, I, I'm really, I'm hoping to see that become something that uh, AMTA really takes more of a, more ownership of. I think that it's a great thing to have, and it will really, as Will mentioned, help with with getting hosts. I also was uh, excited to hear about the strategic plan. I think that you know, Will's right that it's it's needed right now. I think that there's a lot of growth and we need to start thinking about what's going to happen in the future and how we need to grow. So I'm excited to hear it. I think that it it hit a lot of the, the notes that I, I was hoping it would. I think that it shows that Will wants to be making change and is not just going to be a figurehead. So I'm excited. I, it definitely inspired me. Yeah. And I, I, I liked the part where he talked about how discussion is good, but he's going to be expecting action because <laughs> we're a, a national mock trial organization. I think we could discuss these issues, you know, and beat them into the ground. And if, you know, this podcast isn't proof of that, then I don't know what is. And uh, so I like the fact that he's saying discussion is good, but we got to do things. We also have to accomplish things. We have to, you know, get into the weeds and make sure we get things done. So uh, we put together a list of the uh, really three or four biggest things that happen. And then at the end of this episode, we'll go through a few other small things that happen at the board meeting so that, you know, we can bring you details on all of the different decisions that were made. Uh, so we're going to walk through those now. And the first one that I think is uh, particularly exciting was one of the last things that happened at the board meeting, which is that the board selected the 2020 national championship tournament host. That's going to be Loyola Chicago, uh, led by Mike Walsh, who's a board member. It's going to be, sounds like a downtown Chicago tournament. And based on his sort of initial descriptions of the work he's done so far, I think it's going to be a really, really great tournament. There's a ton of opportunity for uh, cool venues in Chicago. I'm a little partial. Uh, I don't know how many out there know this, but I was born in Chicago. My family's all from Chicago. And so that was very exciting for me. I think I will probably show up to that tournament, whether or not I have a team there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Drew, I, I, I mean, it is what it is, right? It's, it's the NCT host, but I think Chicago <laughs> is a great city to bring the championship to. Yeah, I'm excited. I, I think that uh, obviously with nationals being in Philadelphia, right in my backyard this year, I'm excited for that. Um, I like traveling for nationals. Should I get to go? Um, you know, I think that it's always fun to get to travel for it. It's part of the excitement. Um, and I think that, I think you're right. I think Chicago will be a great host. I think that Loyola is a, an excellent program and Mike Walsh is going to be phenomenal. I think that uh, there's a piece of me that I'm not going to say that I, I 
dislike Midwestern judging after this nationals, but uh, I definitely am partial to East Coast judging. So uh, if I had my say, it would always be on the East Coast, but obviously that would never happen. And uh, Chicago is as good a place as any. Yeah. And I have, I mean, who knows, but I have a hunch that, you know, downtown Chicago judging may be a little bit different than downtown Minneapolis judging. <laughs> Very uh, true. You know, but time will tell. We'll see. The other thing exciting too is Mike did say uh, in the meeting that he has the uh, potential, although I don't know if the board will ask him to do this, but to turn it into a 54-team tournament as opposed to a 48-team tournament, which could come into play with the potential for a ninth orcs and how many bids would come out of each orcs. So sounds like, you know, the 2020 NCT is in good hands and I'm excited for it. It's interesting that we you mentioned the ninth orcs because to me, the concept of having 54 teams at nationals, you know, I really like because it means that we can have a ninth orc and not prevent teams from uh, from getting a bid out if they're the sixth team. Um, I know that there's a plan to add a ninth orcs this year, and I'll say that I, for one, am a little bit nervous if we end up only having five five bids out of each orcs. That just makes what's already an awful tournament even worse. And I will be frank that I'm very nervous about how that's going to look um, if we remain at 48 teams uh, with nine orcs. So I'm glad to hear that Mike Walsh has something in place to hopefully mitigate that um, as we continue to grow. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you that, that as we've talked about before, you know, everyone <laughs> agrees. And the sentiment was expressed at the board meeting that orcs is just a stressful, awful experience. And, and so it makes a lot of sense that they're planning for the future in that respect. So moving forward to the, uh, we really, I think, have four big motions that had rulings on them that we want to spend a little bit of time on. And the first one that we have on the list is CRC, so CRC standing for the Competition Response Committee 01. And that was the motion asking for a clarification for the board to work on a clarification for invention of fact and the uh, things related to uh, invention of fact from this past season. It was uh, a motion to add further guidance to the invention of fact rule, either in the form of a policy drafted by the CRC or additional text for that rule regarding improper invention generally, and more specifically, what constitutes an egregious improper invention. What happened with this motion is it passed. However, it passed with an amendment referring it to three committees, to the CRC, to the Rules Committee, and to the Ethics Committee. And they were tasked with essentially working over the next several months over the invitational season and to provide uh, a draft language, essentially the amendment specifically said to provide draft language for the mid-year board meeting, which is a conference call that happens after the fall season. So this was interesting, right? Like there wasn't as much substantive discussion on this issue as I expected. Uh, I know a lot of that happens in these individual committees. But Drew, I definitely expected maybe a little bit more of the behind the scenes discussion to happen on the record. And it sounds like most of that's going to happen in, in committee. So I don't know, as, as a current competitor, who's going to be the one who has to start to adapt to any changes that they make for this upcoming season? Where What are your thoughts on referring this to committee and getting some language, hopefully by the mid-year meeting? I don't mind it being referred. I think that it's something that we really need to think about a lot. And I hope that in referring it, uh, it can be a discussion that maybe even extends to some of the teams, some of the current competitors. Um, because the thing to understand is that this is, uh, it's a really nuanced issue. I think that 
one of the problems is that no one really knows what exactly an improper invention is, what, what makes something egregious. I think that, you know, if you asked me personally, a lot of it for me is about how can a team in trial adapt to it and how can they mitigate it? Um, because I think that one of the, one of the sanctionable, uh, instances that happened this year was was someone saying oh my affidavit is flat out wrong it is all forged like i i didn't actually mean any of that and there's no in trial remedy for that you can't you you can't go up on cross and be like like no you didn't you know like i mean there there's just nothing you can do about that um and i think that one of the biggest things for me with improper inventions is that you know as much as we want to you know say to that team like hey like you can't do that anymore the team that was that it happened to the team that was affected by it and you know in theory probably lost the round because of it you know there's no remedy for that team and and i'm not saying that we should go back and and change the ballot scores i don't think that we should ever do that but i think that what i'd be intrigued to see from come out of this this uh, this passing is i would love to see some language that's maybe added to judging instruction to to do something with judging to say hey like if something happens that you feel is re- like really disingenuous and we'd have to be careful with how we do this but i think that that's a more intriguing solution to me than just sanctioning every team that it happens to just from the perspective of i don't think it really solves that much of the issue and i i don't love having tons and tons of sanctions because at the end of the day, it, I think it just takes away from a lot, and it's, it encourages more people to come up to their amateur reps and complain during rounds. And not to say that it's invalid to do. I just, I, I think that you know we should try to have as many in trial remedies as we can. That that makes sense. And the last thing you said is, I'm glad you said that because one of the interesting things that we learned from the board meeting is that some members of the CRC uh, recounted to the board that there were 16 instances in which people requested relief under the improper invention rules during the AMTA season this year. Most of them, it sounds like, occurred after the initial sanction was issued after the board indicated they were, you know, enforcing this rule for the first time in a long time. Only two, as we all know, were ultimately sanctioned to a level where they issued a letter, but there were other instances where some members of the board felt that they were worthy of that level of sanctions. They just didn't get, I guess, enough votes. I don't know if it's a majority or unanimous or whatever. Uh, but so there were other instances where people chimed in. And and what I liked that I heard was that they specifically said, and I believe it's either in the language to the amendment or it's just sort of understood in the discussion that the people, these committees are expected to seek comment from the membership at large, that there, there was some discussion about maybe publishing edited anonymized versions of some of these sanctions and asking members at large, should this be punishable? Should we do X or Y about you know this particular conduct? So I really hope that that discussion goes on because I think it would be a big mistake if the board you know decided not to seek comment from the people that are actually going to have to be uh, enforcing these rules. So I don't really know where this is going to go from here. As Will mentioned in his speech, there's a lot of disagreement. Quite frankly, there's a lot of disagreement from the people in that room. But I hope that the committees will be working hard over the next couple months to come up with something that we can all agree on, whether it's like you said, editing the PowerPoint, the judge's presentation, or 
you know, some going back and, and dealing with some of these issues. I'm not exactly sure the best approach, but I think they put it in the right hands. The second thing that happened at the board meeting that we wanted to discuss is something that was really interesting from my perspective, which was Rule 02. This was a motion that had to do with evidentiary objections in statements. It sounds like last year there was some discussion uh, about the possibility of just allowing objections and openings and closings. There's not a ton of appetite on the board for that, which I personally think is a mistake. Um, but Jonathan Woodward made a motion this year uh, to amend Rule 8.12, uh, which is the objections aren't permitted in statements rule, uh, and add this portion to say, except that an evidentiary objection may be made prior to opening statement or closing argument with respect to a demonstrative aid an attorney anticipates will be used during the opponent's statement or argument. That passed as written and it, it passed without a whole lot of discussion, which was interesting. There were a couple of people who chimed in, but there wasn't a lot of back and forth. And I'm actually really concerned about this because I think this is the worst thing that can happen for uh, overzealous college mock trial students, which is that it's vague. And we all know, like, we, and uh, as a coach, I, I'm probably guilty of this at times, like, you know, something vague is something where it's an opportunity to try and throw the other team off or try to, you know, not not do something unethical, but something that maybe isn't exactly what the rule is intended to do. So as someone who just wants statements to be able to be objected to, I guess it's a step in the right direction, but I'm not really sure. I just feel like it's going to be a situation where if this is going to be the rule, the board's going to have to go back and pass more clarifying language to decide, you know, what this really means and what's permitted. Yeah, I guess that my my thinking with it is that I actually think it's a step in the right direction. But for me, I want them to go a little further because I guess I really think that we should just allow objections before and after and, and not not confine it to to just about about uh demonstratives i think that what what this is gonna have what's my expectation of this is that now whenever someone wants to hold up a picture during their opening someone's gonna object to it not being entered into evidence yet like to me like that's what this is gonna be which i find like boring and silly and i don't think is the issue what i do think is a bigger issue is i want there to be a mechanism for calling a team out for mentioning something in their specifically really their closing statement that did not come out in trial. I see that happening a ton and I think that good judges notice it, but a lot don't. Mm -hmm. And I think that particularly when you're a defense team, you should have a right to object. And I mean, in real life, it's grounds for a mistrial, but, but object and say, you know, your honor, they brought forth, they mentioned, you know, the gun receipt yet that was never entered, it was never discussed, What whatever you may have, um, just to kind of flack the judges with like a, hey, you know, they just messed up badly. Because especially if you're, you know, a judge that's judged four rounds, you know, they blend together. Like, I get that. As a competitor, they blend together. But I think that like, that's the bigger objection to me that, that we need to be allowing is to, you know, give teams a chance to say, hey, hey, they can't do that. Um, and I, I just think that, you know, for demonstratives, like, come on, like, I just don't care that much about using demonstratives before a statement. I I agree with all of that. And, there, you know, someone brought up in the fairly short discussion, you know, does this mean you can object to a whiteboard if you think that someone's going to write something on there that you don't like? 
Uh, and I just like, I don't think it solves the actual problem. And, and, and I don't know if we've discussed this on the podcast before, but you know, law school mock trial, you can object during, uh, opening and closing statements. And look, I get it again, overzealous college students, but the way it works at that level is you better be pretty darn sure that it's worth it. Because if you object, I mean, this works this way in real life too. If you object during a statement and you don't have a really good reason for why the judge or the jury is not going to be happy. And so I think in my entire time, you know, including practice trials and everything, you know, in law school mock trial, which was probably, you know, 50, 60 trials, I think I objected twice during a closing statement or, you know, I never objected during an opening, but I think I objected twice during closing and both of them were egregious bringing in facts that had not been entered during trial. And that is exactly why, right? And maybe it would be a bigger issue in college mock trial because we're all a little bit over energetic about this stuff. (laughs) But I just, I think we should try it. I think we should try it, you know, make all loss 305, build in a little bit extra time, maybe, you know, cut down direct times to 20 or cut down cross times to 24 minutes or something like you can shave a little bit of time here and there and force people, you know, or maybe even just allow it in closing, you know, openings. It's there's not usually a ton worth objecting to in openings, but closings, I, I think it's worth it. And I'm not convinced that this motion does what I think we need to be doing with this portion of the rules. The next thing that happened is something that I have a hunch that you, Drew, might have some thoughts about. Um, And that was uh, EC07. Uh, The way this was written when the minutes came out, it was written to increase the invitational uh, intellectual property fee from $2 per team per trial to $4 per team per trial. At the board meeting, it was amended to $6 per team per trial. And there was actually some discussion about bumping it up to eight. And all of this was done in service of the fact that AMTA needs hosts. And like what we discussed with two weeks ago with Will, there's all these invitationals and they make all this money. And, um, you know, and AMTA is desperately searching for hosts and they still are right now. And so this was the, they want to make it, the, the, the motivation behind this was to make people feel like, financially and logistically they should consider once more hosting for AMTA as opposed to or in addition to their invitational because there is some language in what was passed that basically it was like a reminder motion to remind students that if you host for AMTA your IP fee is waived but there wasn't any sort of delay it's going into effect this coming season and it's a tripling of the of the IP fee. So Drew is someone who is hosting inv- an invitational, fairly large invitational, and not an AMTA tournament. Where do you come down on this? Uh, I basically, I think that you mentioned it towards the end, but the big thing for me was that there was no delay. Um, I really think that a delay would have helped me wrap my mind around it a little more. I don't actually disagree with the intention behind it, and I don't have a huge problem with it in general. I'm a big advocate for AMTA raising more money. I think that it's a phenomenal organization, and I think that the service we're providing is amazing. Um, and the fact it, it's a nonprofit, like it's not like this money is going into someone's pocket. It's it's going to to continue to grow this organization, and I am all for that. And I think that similarly encouraging teams to to host regionals and orcs is a good thing. That being said, I think that raising it threefold 
immediately where there's not really a chance for teams to be like, oh, wait, this has huge ramifications on the financial situation for my team is a little bit hasty. Um, I mean, there are a lot of programs that rely pretty heavily on their tournament for as, as a source of money for them. And I know for us, I've already calculated it. If we remain at 32 teams, it's going to cost us $768 just in terms of our uh, IP fee. And I mean, that's a lot of money. That's, I mean, that's a good, you know, two, three uh, other invitationals and, you know, that could be hotels. I mean, that, that, that's not nothing. And I really think that, um, for a lot of teams that have already released um, their tournament uh, invites, for a lot of teams that you know they've already you know set up their schedule, um, maybe teams have sent in budgets. I just feel like this is a little bit late to be making such a big change that's going to affect teams in this way. And especially if you're hosting Invitational, I think that you should have the opportunity to you know either move that fee to the teams or you know whatever solution you want to do to to mitigate this cost. I just think that it's it's really tough on those hosts, um, and it's it's gonna be a it's gonna people are gonna notice it. I mean, it's not gonna be negligible anymore. Um, again, that being said, I do think it's a good thing to be doing. I just wish they gave us more time because I know it would have definitely impacted our decision whether or not to host, whether or not we would apply to be a host of a amp to sanction tournament. And I actually think that uh, it. it I don't think it would have really changed many teams' decisions to do that next year. I just think that it's it's going to really hurt a lot of programs' budgets this year. And and there were some people who talked about how they would have had different registration fee amounts if they had known about this, right? That their registration fees for their invitational might have gone up fifty bucks, which you know goes back to the notion that when this fee was first implemented, it was done based on how much money, a you know, percentage of how much money you collected. And I guess you know, Will mentioned at the meeting that that was hard to enforce. And I'm sure I don't doubt that by any stretch of the imagination. But I mentioned at one point that I think maybe that system made a little bit more sense when you have an invitational that in good faith is trying not to charge a lot of money. I'm interested to see where this goes. I hope it results in more AMTA hosts. But I do generally agree, even as someone who hosts both an invitational and an AMTA tournament, that it. I'll, I'll be interested to see if it actually has its intended effect. You know, I actually really agreed with something you just mentioned there, Ben, which is that this is also a flat fee and it, it doesn't have anything to do with how much the tournament actually costs. So to use two extreme examples, for Rhodes, their tournament, which costs $25 a team, they make $1 off every team that goes to their tournament. Whereas should the downtown stay at you know $1,000 per team, you know, this is only, you know, it's less than, uh, I believe it's 2.4% of, of their fees. So that's a very different effect on their on their imitational fee when you think about, you know, how much this is costing NYU versus how much this is costing Rhodes. And to your point, I think that maybe instead of having a flat fee, maybe it should be a percentage um, and just in terms of making it fair across the board and that teams are kind of giving equal amounts. Yeah. And I know that's how it was set up initially. And there were, like I said, I think there were some reasons for changing it, but I, I, that was my reaction too. It's just that the goal is 
to get some of these big programs who you know could do both to do both. And yeah, it would be more work. I can tell you as someone who does both, it is more work. It's not easy, but it's rewarding. It's good for the community. And sometimes you just kind of have to take a little bit of one for the team in order to benefit an an organization that does a lot for us and, and does need more hosts. The last thing that came up in sort of the, the major motions that we've gauged, we think people will be most interested in, uh, is TAC uh, 03, which was essentially, it was kind of a redundant motion because it was uh, a motion to instruct Will to form an ad hoc tournament committee, which he had already done. Uh, but uh, it was sort of lumped in, there wasn't a lot of discussion, but uh, there was some discussion before the meeting about TACO 2, which was a proposal put forth by a couple different people to uh, return the NCT to what it once was with 64 teams, split that into two 32-team divisions, and then essentially have an AMTA Super Bowl a couple weeks later. And TACO 3 passed. TACO 2 certainly did not and was never intended to pass. But the the impetus behind it was to kick off some discussion, right? The The people like Dan Hoy and some of the other people who were responsible for that motion talked about how they didn't ever expect it to pass but they knew we needed to start discussing that we're straining the sort of the edges of our current tournament structure and this is an area i'm very interested in i actually like the idea behind taco too the the going back to 64 and splitting them up there's a lot of logistical things that need to be worked through but i like the sort of the thought behind it but at the very least i I don't know if everyone feels this way, but I certainly feel like our tournament structure is stretching to its limits. And I hope that this ad hoc committee, which has a lot of great people on it, will be able to come up with some interesting ideas for, you know, I mean, we already see this year, if there's going to be five bids out of each orcs, like, that's a little crazy. And I hope that this committee will be able to come up with some ideas for how to maybe renovate our tournament structure. Yeah, I got to say, uh, I disagree Um with a little bit of what you were saying in terms of TACO 2, there are a number of reasons why I dislike it. Um, the first being, I think splitting up the weekends is is not a good idea. I think that, honestly, Nationals is, is a one-weekend thing. I think that it's already enough of an academic strain on people. I think that spreading it out is more of a financial strain. It's more of an academic strain. I just think that it's... It's also not as exciting. I think that getting to watch the live round, there's a lot of excitement around it. I think that it would – I don't think that it would necessarily have the desired effect. And the other thing is in terms of expanding it, I am all for expanding. I think that we need to. I think that we are a growing organization. But I I have concerns about just jumping to 64 because if that's still divided into two divisions and they're both – a two division of 32, you get to a point where you start having an issue in which the, the winner isn't necessarily a team that has beaten all of the other, you know, just as good teams. And and what I'm referring to is the fact that even if you look at this year, for the most part, they're kind of two final rounds in round four going on that determine who that final champion out of that division is going to be and as we continue to grow i just i foresee scenarios in which you know the team that makes it out of their division is the team with the more lenient final round or the better 
the better schedule and not the team that had to literally beat the next best team in order to make it. I think that what I like about our current size is that with 24 teams, you can't get around it. If you're going to make it to the final round, you have to beat the number two team when you go into round four. And I like that because it, it makes it really hard to get out. But if you have a situation in which there are four or five, maybe six teams going into round four with the same record, then, you know, team five playing team six, you know, if team five ends up sweeping team six and teams one through four are all splitting, all of a sudden the fifth best team suddenly jumps up to first. I, I don't know. I just don't love that situation just based on an easy final round. I think that, you know, size is important um, for nationals in terms of us keeping it confined and, and really finding who that top team at that tournament is. And I don't necessarily disagree with any of that, but I think that the bigger problem is our organization, that the percentage of teams, if there's 48 teams going to nationals every year, the percentage of teams that that represents obviously is decreasing every year. And at some point, I mean, you could reach a point in theory, if let's say if we grow and in three or four years, we have 900 teams registering every year. I mean, you could get to a point where there are four bids out of each works, you know, and, and I think that the larger problem here is the stretching of our tournament size. I don't think anything you said is necessarily invalid. And so maybe that means that the Nationals pairing system needs another look. Maybe if there are two 32-team divisions, you could look at having a five-round tournament. I, I'm just sort of spitballing here. But I definitely... Like, I don't, I don't think the Super Bowl idea is perfect. Although I think if they're done on the same weekend in different places, yeah, the final round doesn't happen right there. But... You know, I think that that loss is offset by the benefit of it, it isn't that big of a difference between traveling to the NCT right now. Either way, whatever happens, whether it's, you know, maybe we go to 54 like we were discussing earlier, you know, maybe we stay at 48. I really hope that we're no one's afraid of saying, oh, well, this is the way we've done it for a long time. So this is the way we need to sort of keep doing things. Our tournament structure is good in a lot of ways, but it can absolutely get better. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the growing of AMTA because I, I don't, again, I, I really think that it's it's true. We are growing and we need to adapt to that, but I don't know that I think that nationals is where that growth needs to be. I, I think that I I would like this 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 committee to find a way to kind of eliminate how many teams are going to regionals and orcs percentage wise in terms of you know if there's a way to take you know the top couple of teams and not require them to go through regionals and orcs or maybe have the bottom half of teams need to do some sort of qualifiers to get to regionals i think that there are some things that we can do to adapt to the growth without necessarily changing nationals because, you know, despite being someone coming from a small program, this may be a controversial view, but when you look at who, you know, our growth, I don't necessarily think that um, a lot of those growing teams, I, I don't know, I just think that, like, you know, if we add 20 teams that are, you know, joining regionals that are all not doing super well, does that mean that we need to add four more spots at nationals? 
I don't know. Um, and, you know, granted, again, those teams over time, they get better and they improve and they'll eventually get there. But I just think that we, we don't necessarily want to fall into this trap of, you know, making nationals a proportion of our of our body. And I, I like it being an elite group. I like that it, it's hard to make it to nationals. I, you know, maybe with the growing of AMTA, it means that making nationals back-to-back years is really, really hard. And, you know, maybe only, you know, five or six really great programs are able to do that year after year. My two things to that, though, is first of all, the NCT used to be 64 teams back when AMTA was much smaller. And it was pretty, it was only after AMTA left Des Moines and started doing it somewhere else other than Des Moines that it started getting smaller because other hosts couldn't do 64. And and I think it's a logical number. I, I forget who made the point uh, at the board meeting that, you know, the NCAA basketball tournament is 64 teams and there are, you know, a hundreds and hundreds of teams that that you know try to feed into that every year the the other thing though is if you keep you know and and your idea about maybe trying to find some ways to reduce the number of teams whether it's a november or december qualifier which there is some some people who who like that idea and some people who are pretty pretty against it but i think that randomness thing that you were talking about earlier can come back into play that if there if we get to a point where there are only four bids out of orcs you you know somebody gets a bid out with a 12 cs and somebody sits at home with a 21.5 cs and that's just going to happen more if we you know if if the nct stays at 48 teams or if we don't like you said implement a way to you know maybe less teams advance from regionals to orcs or less teams even get to go to regionals in the first place i don't, I don't have a great solution to to any of that but i definitely i hope that this committee looks at everything, you know, from what you were saying to, you know, maybe just having a ton of works and maybe nationals just gets harder and harder to get into. I don't know exactly what the right way to go is, but I am encouraged that people are proposing new ideas. And I would encourage everyone listening to this and, and the community at large to reach out to board members, to reach out to people in AMTA if you have thoughts on this, on ways that you think maybe our system could improve and grow and, and get better. Yeah, you know, I actually think that's a really great point about reaching out to people. Uh, I, From what I know about the committee that was made, it's made up of people that are really active in this community and want our feedback. Um, I've already been reached out to and people have said, asked me, um, and I know that I'm not alone in that. So, I, you know, whether it's on perjuries, whether it's on maybe if Mock Trial Confessions ever posts something, you know, find a way to, to get your thoughts out there, you know, hell, send them to us and we'll talk about them at some point, I'm sure. I think that to me, that's going to be a really cool, you know, thing that in the entire AMTA community can hopefully work on. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I hope that we're able to spur some of that discussion and, and pass it along to the board and, and our organization doesn't lack in opinions. Uh, and this is one area where that could be, be a good thing. So there were a couple other motions that were passed or ruled on that we want to go through before we wrap up. We've got, I think, five here that we want to do a quick speed round. So the first one is EC03, which was a um, a motion that was proposed to have the board uh, go through implicit bias training. This motion passed. Uh, it's just an initial proposal. I think the proposal is going to cost them to about $2,000. It's a fairly short remote training that the board members are going to go through. And yeah, it's 
you know, it's kind of scratching the surface of a fairly massive problem, but that's obviously not limited to AMTA. It's a societal problem with, with racial and gender bias and many other biases in the law and in a lot of these fields. But I think it's a step in the right direction for uh, members of AMTA, the AMTA's board, to get some training in that that hopefully they can uh, build off of. And And I imagine this is not the last time that something like this will happen and maybe it'll get passed on in future times to reps and committee members and things like that. The next one that was interesting was Rules 07. Uh, this one, unfortunately, I, I'd like to read the language, but I, I don't have it since the minutes haven't come out yet. But the reason for the Rules 07 motion was to prevent students from basically chasing judges and trying to get them to change their scores or change their uh, um individual award rankings. This went through a number of different amendments. And then on Sunday, Jonathan Woodward came back with new language and that was ultimately adopted. And uh, the purpose of it is if you basically, if you think that the judges screwed something up, if they got the scale wrong, or if they got two people confused, you can go to the AMTA representatives and the AMTA representatives can choose whether or not to try and find the judge and speak to them. But there's now a rule in place, uh, replacing what I think was generally understood for the most part, which is don't get your blue ballot and then go find the judge at lunch and harass them. Yeah. I mean, uh, honestly, this was the one rule that I looked at and I was like, Oh, that doesn't already exist. Uh, I mean, I, I would never dream of going up to a judge after a round and talking to them about the ballot. I, it's good that we have it. Honestly, it, I, again, I'm surprised it didn't already exist. Yeah. I had the same exact reaction. Like that's just, don't do that. Don't be that person. Um, the next one was rules 01, which was the bench book rule, which is also a Jonathan Woodward motion. You know, there was that vague rule uh, that just said bench books aren't permitted, but it didn't really define what that was. And a lot of teams like us haven't, you know, do pretrial binders uh, and the rule. Some could read it. I, I think it's a wrong reading, but some could have read it saying that those are banned. So now the way this works is if you would like to use a pretrial binder, Rules 01 sets out specifically what is allowed to be in that pretrial binder, what order those things must be in, and also says you can't get rid of, you, you can't not introduce any of those documents. You just have to put them all in the binder, and that way we can just sort of simplify the rule. If you want to be one of the teams that introduces less than what's in this new rule, you can do that. You just can't put it in the binder. And I think the rule makes a lot of sense. I think it clarifies what was a sort of a vague rule that sounds like it dates back over 20 years. And so I thought this one made a lot of sense. I, I am so glad that they added this. It has been so frustrating for me because I can recall trials in which at the beginning, you know, I was like, oh, we have this binder. We're going to give the judges. And they're like, oh, you can't give them that. And I'm just like, my God, like, it's just, it makes everyone's life so much easier. Like judges hate having a thousand documents on their table and it's just chaotic. I'm all for giving them the whole case in front of them so they can just flip through it. Um, I, I, there are ramifications of that, but at least this is, you know, something just because my goodness, like the amount of, and the issue is that it's with interpretation. You know, there's some teams that were like, oh, you can't have a binder. Some teams that are like, oh yeah, it's fine. We do the same thing. It was just something that wasn't being universally understood. I'm glad they had some clarification on it. Yeah, and I'm one. I I don't think the judges should have a whole copy of the case. I think it's up to you to provide them what they need. But this rule 
actually specifically prohibits giving the judge a whole copy of the case because it says if you're going to give them a binder, it can only have these things in it. And I, I personally think that's that's the right approach. And whether or not it is or not, it, it just provides some clarity so that you know if you're putting something in front of the judge, you know whether it's permitted or not. And you know there were some people that questioned, does it need to be this specific? But in a world where we're all looking to one-up each other, I think Jonathan's reasoning was sound, which is that let's just make this clean and easy, you know, so that we don't have to worry about teams trying to, you know, run all over the place with it. The rule is specific, the rule is direct, and I think that's a good thing. The uh, next thing that was interesting was tab 03. This is a fairly straightforward one, which is now the minimum rank number that you need to get an AMTA award at regionals, orcs, or nationals is 16 ranks. The reason behind this was this past year was the first time that we had a mini regional and the mini regional, I believe a number of people with 15 ranks got awards, which was the first time in a long time. And everyone pretty much agreed that to get an award, you should have to be on every ballot. And so in that respect, it just seemed to make sense that you don't, once you get down to 15, you get some odd bunching. A lot of times you pick up, you know, 15 or 20 names, not the people who get 15 ranks didn't do a really great job. And it's, I know it's frustrating when, you know, you go like one, one, one off a ballot, but I think given the way our individual award system works, this rule seemed logical and there was no opposition to it. And then the last thing that passed, the last thing before we wrap up was, was tab zero four. Now, what was interesting is tab zero four, uh, as proposed had two parts to it. It had an A and a B, uh, and a. A and Josh Lickrone, I think, originally proposed A and then B got added in committee. Uh, A said, I'll I'll read it here, which is that a team wins a head-to-head tiebreak if it has beaten all other teams with which it is tied, regardless of the number of teams tied at the particular level. And that, I think, it's really only meant for three teams because it'd be hard for it to apply anywhere else. But I think that makes sense, right? If you're tied with two other teams, you have the same head-to-head record, and you have beaten those two teams, you should go ahead of those two teams that I think just sort of logically follows. Um, Section B was struck from the rule. And that section said that when you get to the final two teams, the last team in and the first team out, that once you, you use CS to get everyone in order, and then you look at those last two teams. And if those two teams have played each other, you use head to head to decide basically if the last team out, the first team out, had beaten the last team in, then you would flip those two teams. That was struck for a couple reasons. Some people thought it was confusing. Some people weren't clear on why we would use CS to rank everyone and then just look at those two teams. Uh, I think there was some confusion about the actual benefit of the rule, although I wasn't a huge fan of it myself. But uh, the tiebreak rules have been changed for Section A of Tab 04, uh, but Section B was struck and was not passed. You know, I actually, I thought that section B was kind of interesting because I think that where it applies to me is, you know, if you looked at, uh, you know, a situation like like the Duke at uh, Greenville um, at their orcs, uh, the last team in was Emory, and I believe that the first team out was Duke A, and Duke A... I may be wrong about that, actually, but um, 
I, I believe that I'm I think I may be right about that. Regardless, Duke beat Emory 2-0 in a pretty sound win. And I don't know, I think that it would be kind of it's odd to me, I guess, that that Duke doesn't get to move on considering they literally beat a team that is moving on. I, I don't know. I, I think that it's it's interesting. I, I get why it got taken off. I think that it's definitely tough to say like oh this doesn't matter um but i don't know i certainly think there's something to be said about you know when you have a really tough schedule man does it hurt that a team that you beat gets to move on when you don't i don't know i think that that's something that i would hope that we revisit oh and i agree a lot with that last point and i think some people's point was this doesn't actually completely do that which is that if you're the last team out first team out and you beat the second to last team in it doesn't do anything about that you know even if the, even if you're tied with them and you only lose out because of cs and you know that then part a doesn't apply and all three teams haven't played uh in this situation you'd sort of be sol unless you had it was just just the you know last team in first team out would be the only thing you know that we would look at and i i don't know if this is ironic or what but you know two years ago if this rule existed, if, if part B had been in place and obviously it didn't pass, but like if it had been in place, my A team would have gotten jumped over by Howard B and they would have gone to the NCT. And I had a conversation with Angela Minor from Howard about that. And, and, you know, she could probably make a compelling case that this rule should exist for, you know, given the nature of, of that situation. Uh, I think it's an interesting idea. But I think it was Justin Bernstein who made the point that we have CS to give an overall picture and we use CS and this what this rule essentially would do part B is it would say, okay, we'll use CS to sort everyone. But then when we get to this one specific situation, all of a sudden CS might go out the window, even though in order to get to that situation, you have to have a high enough CS or a low enough CS to be on the cusp of getting a bit. So I mean, I, the discussion was good. I think we should always be looking at our tiebreak rules, especially as things get closer and closer with more and more teams. But as of now, I mean, part A made a ton of sense. And I think part B would be worth considering if maybe there's a way to implement that idea in more of a comprehensive way. Yeah. First of all, I just want to say that I, while Ben was talking, looked at it and I was wrong. I think that uh, Duke was not the first out team at their orcs. Um, but uh, I actually do want to say that I get I get a lot of where that's coming from, Ben, what you were just talking about, um, as far as, you know, we have CS for a reason. But to me, I feel like we also talk a lot about you can only beat who is put in front of you. And if you literally beat the team that was in front of you that is moving on, to me, should I mean, like, that justifies it a lot to me. I, I just think that... You know, you, you have beaten who was put in front of you as far as that team that's moving on. And I don't know, it, it's it's tough for me because I think that CS, it is a great measure of how, how hard your tournament schedule was. But, you know, if you literally beat someone, doesn't that, isn't that a better tiebreaker? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think there's certainly an argument to be made for that and... I don't know if there is a way to fix the the issue with, you know, in theory, you could be tied with someone. And if they're not the 
last team in, you know, this rule wouldn't apply to them. I, I don't know if there's, cause you start to get into the sort of the inverse scenarios and, and the, you know, making sure that, you know, there's all of these rules in place and, you know, they could in theory contradict each other and stuff like that. But I will say, I like the fact that people are always thinking about our tiebreak rules and about how we can be as fair and, uh, balanced as possible in our approach to make sure the right teams get through. So I think that about wraps up our discussion here. Uh, this is obviously a shorter episode since we were just thinking about what happened at the board meeting, but I definitely think that from my experience, the board meeting serves its purpose. I think it had a lot of benefits. I think that all of the important issues that needed to get discussed were discussed. And a lot of these individual committees that are, you know, meeting now and working on these issues will do a great job. The morning session on Saturday, I got to sit in on some really interesting committee meetings, got to hear from a number of different people about our strategic development, about the, you know, the tournaments that we're, uh, you know, trying to recruit people for. And I definitely think that there's a lot of great momentum going on. So, Drew, we've got less than three weeks until the case comes out. Before we know it, we're going to be digging into this year's case. And I got a chance to chat with a lot of the people on the case committee this weekend. Didn't get any secrets, but uh, they're very close-lipped, but the, you can tell they're all really excited about it. So I got to think that you guys over at Haverford are, you know, ready to get your hands on this thing. Oh, for sure. I can't wait. I I've got, I started my timers already, and I'm just counting down the days till case comes out and I can reinvest my entire life into this well thanks everyone for joining us for another episode of this podcast we're looking forward to be back soon with hopefully some interesting guests including some members of the case committee once the case comes out and before we know it you guys are going to be suiting up for those early invitationals thanks everyone for joining us and this has been another episode of the mock review with ben and drew